Service, please. You're listening to the Food and Travel Podcast with Paul Feinstein. 209, now arriving. Anywhere you want to say it, I can get us in anywhere. Here's the most interesting man in the world, Paul Feinstein. She's a PhD psychologist. She can teach you how to think like Sherlock Holmes. She's gone deep into the world of con artists, and she's now a professional poker player who finds life lessons with every single bad beat at the table. On this week's episode of the Paulcast, hosted by me, Paul Feinstein, I chat with Maria Konnikova about her new book, The Biggest Bluff, which follows her on a year-long journey around the world to master the game of poker and derive critical insights into decision-making and thinking for everyday life. Maria and I initially met in Barcelona, where she was competing in a poker tournament and touring as an ambassador for PokerStars, which is one of the biggest online poker platforms in the world. On the pod, we dig deep into nostalgia, playing for stakes, food science, and even the phenomenon of feeling like you belong in another place the moment you step foot in a new country. Maria is one of the smartest people I know, so if you're interested in ways to overcome fears, get better at negotiating, navigating new challenges, or just want a little insight into the poker world, you'll really enjoy this conversation. Thanks as always for listening, and I'll see you on the other side. Flight 209er, you are cleared for takeoff. Roger. Okay. Uh, hello, and welcome to the podcast. I am here with Maria Konnikova. Hi, Maria. Say hi to the people out there. Hey, Paul. Um, it's so good to see you again. Uh, for those of uh, the listeners who don't know about you, can you just give me the, the, the Cliff's Notes, who you are, why we're talking today? Uh, sure thing. Thanks. Sure thing. So I am a writer um, and a journalist um, and somehow became a professional poker player. And that <laughs> happened um, as part of my research for my newest book, which just came out called The Biggest Bluff. And it was, I was not supposed to become a professional poker player, but it was a, uh, it kind of happened along the way. Um, it's, uh, it's such a fun and interesting read and it got me thinking in so many different ways. Um, it's almost a year to the month, I think, when, yeah. when I met you in Barcelona and when I was capped at 10 minutes of talking to you. Which... <laughs> <laughs> in, another, in another time and place, right? Back when we had live poker events and we could go to Barcelona. What a different world that was. Yeah, but on the plus side, you don't have to touch the grimy chips anymore. This um, is true. So uh, what I thought was interesting, though, and it, your book made me think a lot about it, was sort of, if it wasn't for that press trip, I actually wouldn't well, I wouldn't have met you and I actually wouldn't even have this podcast because it was people that I met on that press trip that actually pushed me into doing this in the first place. So it was really, it just sort of like was nice and it, it leads me into uh, the question of nostalgia just generally because your book yeah. brought up so many things in my head um, as I, you know, I write about food and I write about travel, but so much nostalgia kept rushing into my brain about not just poker that I played, you know, so much in uh, for myself in the past, but also uh, how vivid those memories are of decision points in your life with interviews yeah. that you had or negotiations that you've had. And, and I was wondering if it, it's, it's the same party, if it's the same part of your brain that sort of locks onto like that meal that you had or that place that you visited. Is it the same thing that's happening inside your head? Yeah. I mean, I think that the decision points and the meals are slightly different things inside your head. Um, so, so the decision points I think are 
emotional because of the fact that you, it was important um, and you really thought about it. And it was something that you really encoded well to begin with because you knew it was important. So our memories tend to be much stronger when we know that there's, there's something that we're going to be revisiting. Wonderful memories like foods and restaurants and trips, those are also very powerful. And in some ways, those can be stronger um, because they're encoded much more sensually, um, by which I mean using all of your senses. And that makes them so powerful. That's why, you know, you have the proverb, the, the Proust Madeleine that, that everyone always refers to um, when you have, you know, the smell that can bring you back to all, all of these other memories. And smell is actually connected to our emotional and memory centers. So it's a very, that's why it's so powerful, but it's true of just experiences with friends of, I mean, think about your last great meal in a restaurant. Actually don't, you're going to make me start crying. Because... Make me start crying as well. <laughs> <laughs> but, but think about all of the senses that you use, right? Wonderful meals, wonderful ex travel experiences like that. They're oftentimes exceptional because it's, you're using your eyes the meal is beautiful. You're you're using your your nose. You're using your taste. You're using your ears because oftentimes the sounds are involved, and you have the emotional connection if you're sharing it with friends. And even if you don't, you know, if you're sharing it with the food, and <laughs> the food is good, that can be pretty extraordinary too. And so I think it encodes memories almost despite you. You don't actually have to think this is a really wonderful experience. This is going to be my best meal ever. So I'm have to focus and really. Remember, your brain does that for you because you are enjoying it. Um, so I think I'm glad that my book brought back both things because I think those are two, those are two very important processes. And now, I mean, you know, I, I miss, I miss Barcelona. I miss being there right now. Um, the best. I miss traveling and going to all these restaurants. One of the reasons you and I, you and I talked back, uh, back last year um, about why Barcelona was one of my favorite poker destinations. It's actually my favorite. Um, and food is one of the major reasons, food and water as an ocean. <laughs> but, <laughs> but there's so many wonderful food memories there. And that's really important because as a poker player, you travel all over the world and you're constantly on the road. And if you can't eat well, you're just, you're not going to play well. Got it. So I want to delve into your book in a lot of different ways. One of the ways I want to I want to talk about is so I have a lot of like younger writers I'm sure you get this experience too who ask you sort of like how you get into things and how you break into things and how you you know deal with trying to become a professional in this world and a lot of your book deals with this you know the concepts of luck versus preparedness and how mm -hmm. they sort of go together or don't and and I, and I led me to think a lot about like the fear of rejection or the fear of saying no to a request or, or, or just the fear of negotiation in general. Can you talk a little bit about that and how you sort of came to uh, your conclusions in your book? No. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I just, please. I just wanted... oh, please. <laughs> you have the power of the, the fear, situation. The fear, the fear of saying no, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean. All you can do is ask. <laughs> The, you know, it, it's, it's really scary being a novice. It's really scary starting from scratch. 
it's really scary cold calling people and reaching out to people who you admire and who are so much more accomplished than you'll ever be. Um, and it doesn't get easier. So to all, everyone who's an aspiring writer out there, I hate cold calling. Now I've been doing this for over a decade and I still, it makes me nervous. The fear of rejection is real. I still feel like a total imposter. Whenever someone's like, I, I read your book, I'm like, why did you spend all that time doing it? <laughs> you know, don't you have better things to do? Um, no, but it's true. You know, you, you, you think, how lucky did I get to get here? And that feeling never even went away in writing. So then when I entered an entirely new world, poker, um, and really started from scratch, from just total zero, and started meeting all of these extraordinary people who were so good. And it was just, a, it was a foreign world in so many respects because it has its own language. It has its own customs. It has its own characters for sure. It has its own norms of behavior. Um, some I think should not be norms of behavior, but that, that's a story for another time. And I think part, when I started this project, I was petrified and I thought, what am I doing? You know, I'm, at the New Yorker, I have a good thing going, you know, <laughs> this is good. Um, what am I doing? And I was so scared for so many reasons. Scared that it was a mistake career-wise. Um, scared that nothing was going to come of it. Um, scared that I'd just be terrible. Um, scared I was making a mistake for lots of different reasons. Scared I wouldn't be able to write this book because I'm not a personal essayist. I'm not someone who ever has written really from my own perspective. I'm never a character in my pieces. I'm a journalist. I write about other people. And I've had the eye knocked out of me <laughs> over years of over years of experience. And to say I'm going to do this project where I'm at the center of it, where I'm the protagonist was something totally different. And I was scared shitless. Like, for for every single reason that that I just that I just described, and then there was a part of me that said, "Good. If you're scared, that means you're doing the right thing, because not being scared is it means that you're complacent. It means you're settling. It means that you're just doing the same thing that you already know how to do." In my mind, one of the best markers of whether or not you should do something is, "Does it scare you?" And if the answer is yes. Um, but then there are other reasons. I mean, going into a cage with a tiger also scares me. I'm not going right. to do that. <laughs> um, so, so within reason. But if the answer is yes, then it's probably a good thing because challenges are how you grow. It's how you learn. It's how you become a better, more accomplished version of you. So I think that we need to learn to get past that fear of rejection, the fear of hearing no, even when some sassy person that you are interviewing for your podcast says no when you ask her a question. Well, what, did, but what about poker itself that taught you sort of to help overcome this stuff? Like the life lessons of yeah. losing and, and, and what you learn from for that. Sure. And, and, and well, whatnot. no, poker is actually a game that really helps you get over a lot of those fears because it ain't cutting it at the poker table. You can't be, you can't say, oh, you know what? I'm really scared of, um, playing this against this person. I'm just not going to, I'm just going to get up and leave the tournament. If they're at your table, then they're at your table. 
you oftentimes are scared, but you don't have the option of walking away. You have to play through the fear or go broke. I mean, that's the other option. (laughs) You can walk away. You can go broke. That's fine. Um, And so, and so you have to learn to deal with it. And poker teaches you that you need to let all of that noise out of your head because what you can do is focus on the things that are within you to control. So you can focus on, you know, how you play on how you act. You can focus on your own emotions. You can't control the cards. You can't control who's sitting at your table. You can't control the things that are making you afraid. And so you shouldn't even let that take up part of your brain space. Right. You know, I, I had a very funny conversation with Eric Seidel, who was my coach, when, you know, I had busted out of a tournament for non-poker players. That means I lost all my money. <laughs> I was out and was walking away with zero dollars. Um, but the next person actually who busted after me made money. And so it was very, it was very frustrating. And I had had a very good hand um, and someone else had a worse hand and called me and then ended up making a better hand. And so I was out of the tournament and I was very upset. And I went to Eric and I started telling him this story and he just shut me up. (laughs) He said, I don't want to hear it. And I got so upset. I thought, well, you're supposed to listen to my stories. And he said, no, there's always going to be someone at the table telling you how their aces got cracked. That's the best hand you could be dealt in poker is, is aces. Don't be that person. Because that's just like putting your trash in someone else, on someone else's lawn. And that was a wake-up call to me because I realized that bad beat stories, that's what, that's what that is when you have a bad beat. They really make you not just focus on the wrong things, but they're toxic to yeah, you. They're draining. They poison you. They yes. drain your energy. They drain your resources. Because instead of focusing on something productive, on what you can do and what you can learn, on how you can improve, on whether you've made mistakes or not, you're letting all of your energy go towards this thing that just you have no power over and it's so stupid. And we do it all the time. I mean, bad beats have nothing to do with poker <laughs> all the time. You're like, Oh my God, that's so unfair. I can't believe that happened. I can't believe like, this happened. No, it's, it's draining. Right. And what we should be doing is actually using our energy to become stronger, to become better, to make, learn how to make better decisions. And once I learned that, once I learned how to reframe my mindset, I think it really gave me the tools to be a much more resilient person in a lot of ways. Um, someone who's able to say, Oh, okay, bad beat time to move on because I made the right decision. So, so that's, that's good. If you suffer a bad beat, that be, that means you made the right decision. So you actually did something right. If you made the wrong decision. Hopefully you made the right decision. Yes. Well, if you know, if <laughs> well, you, right. If, Cause it's a real bad beat is because you made beat. the right decision. Exactly. Yeah, 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 got it. Otherwise you yeah. wouldn't have, Otherwise, you just have gotten your money in bed and it would be a cooler. So there's actually, there are two different terms. There's a cooler where you have an incredibly strong hand and someone else has an even stronger hand. And so when you get your money in, you're not a favorite, but that's a cooler. That's, you know, you still made the right decision probably, but a bad beat. Yeah, exactly. But bad beat, you made the right decision. You were the favorite and then the cards went against you. Right. 
And that happens in life so often. I mean, how many times have you suffered bad beats? A lot. And, <laughs> and it really, that was the other part of this book that got me thinking like, yeah, like life's too short to be whining. It's just too yeah, short. And to thinking about this stuff and just take the lesson and learn from it and move on and stop telling people about your bad beats. Cause honestly, you're just draining you and that other person. At the same exactly. Time. Exactly. Life really is too short because then you have all this time that you're suddenly not spending talking about bad beats and you can use it to explore and to do new things and to try new experiences like starting a podcast. <laughs> yeah. I've taken a few bad beats in that as well. Um, but we won't talk about them because it's no one wants to hear it. Um, so do you think a lot of this has to do with the learning lessons are, are more acute in poker? And, and I think you probably will appreciate this as a writer when you talk about stakes, um, you know, like what's at stake, what's at stake, what's at stake. Cause I, I know people who play poker online, they think they do this, they're doing great, but they're not actually playing for any money. And it's like, well, it doesn't really, count because there's nothing at stake um because your decision making is so different when there's actually something on the line can you can you talk For, about that a little bit yes well actually so eric my coach um didn't let me play for nothing. So I live in New York and online poker is illegal in New York still. Um and so, so dumb. Hmm? so dumb but yes it, it's it. very dumb yes because <laughs> what I ended up doing is reverse commuting every day to New Jersey. So I would cross the river, literally, sit in a cafe, and all of a sudden, cha-ching, it's legal. <laughs> so, so yes, it's very stupid, and I have, I have a lot, a lot to say about that, but we won't, we won't focus on that. But so instead of playing from the comfort of my house, which would have been really wonderful, and what I wish I could have done, instead of doing that, I had to do this crazy reverse commute because Eric said, you are not allowed to play for free. You are not allowed to play for play money because it's going to teach you bad habits. You have to actually have real skin in the game. Now he said, I don't want you playing, you know, for insane amounts of money. You don't know anything. So start very small online. You can play, you know, for a dollar, for, for $5. They're tiny tournaments. But he, he said it's very important, not just for you, but people don't, play, people don't play the same. They don't take it seriously if it's just play chips, if it's just play money. And one of the reasons that poker is such a powerful learning tool and has actually drilled so many of these decision-making and emotional control lessons into my mind in a way that nothing else has, even though, you know, I have a PhD in psychology. I studied decision-making theory. You'd think that <laughs> I'd know this stuff, but no, the reason that poker actually forced me to internalize it and to make those changes in a way nothing else ever did was because you have skin in the game. In poker, you're betting on the outcomes. You actually, your feedback is in your bank account and you're actually seeing that. And if you keep being obtuse and not learning and insisting that you know everything already and you don't need to improve this and no, no, it's fine. You're going to go broke. You're not going to be able to survive. And that's such a powerful teaching mechanism and learning tool because you do have something invested. It's funny. A lot of times when people want to do something like, you know, improve their eating habits or lose weight or something like that. It's really difficult if they just say, oh, New Year's resolution. <laughs> it becomes much better if they actually do something that makes them personally accountable and put skin in the game, you know, public declarations. And then if you lose, you'll have to donate some amount of money to a charity 
that goes against your political beliefs, for instance. <laughs> um, that, that's a very, very good way of doing yeah, that's a great commitment mechanism. And you already, you have to give the money in escrow to someone else because otherwise you can be like, oh yeah, I, of course I donate it. You have to know, and it has to hurt. It has to be an amount that hurts a little bit. It can't be like $10, <laughs> you know, a thousand right. bucks, you know, thousand bucks to the NRA. Boom. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to the gym every day if that's what I said I was going to do. And we're not talking about the National Restaurant Association. They're no, poor, we're not. Those, those poor people with their same acronym. Yes, <laughs> yes. I, I, they have to change. I don't understand. I, I don't really either. don't understand. They have to change it. <laughs> they do. They do. Um, so another part of your book, and I'm going to relate this to food that I thought was so fascinating, was this... Um, you talk about hey, this. I threw weight loss in there. <laughs> yeah, you did. No, it's really good. Um, <laughs> but this John von Neumann, who yeah. who was trying to sort of crack the code of gambling. Is that sort of a, a, a basic way of putting it? Of poker, yeah. Yeah, and so and and I was I've been doing a lot of um, research and talking to a lot of scientists about food science, and one in particular was they're trying to crack the code on on how to measure taste. And I just thought it was so interesting because this also sort of goes into my next question, which yeah. is about your, your previous book, The Confidence Game, um, and how you can sort of trick your brain into thinking something is better than it's not. I just wanted to get sort of get some thoughts around that from you. Yeah, yeah. Well, just in general or, yeah, or on taste? Like, no, well, on taste specifically. I have lots. I actually have lots of thoughts on taste. Okay, I, um, yeah, let's talk about it. I had, so a number of years ago, like four years ago, I guess. Um, it's actually one of my uh, most popular articles. I, I won um, an award for it. It was in the best science and nature writing. I spent um, a week with Heston Blumenthal in um in england when he was reopening the fat duck uh, and the whole the the article was called yeah <laughs> I, I got i got yes yes this is terrible heston blumenthal has cooked me multiple meals <laughs> i feel guilty but it was wonderful but i will say actually to to bring this back before we go into taste to the early part of our conversation those aren't some of the best meals in my life because i was by myself and it yeah. was a very different experience i was doing it as a journalist and the food was exquisite but you know what i would have enjoyed it more had i been with people i love um in a different setting yeah i had the same but, experience when i ate it uh at jiro sushi in, in tokyo yeah i was by myself and it was miserable yep food there you great, go but exactly exactly um so 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 there you have it but um the resulting article was called altered tastes because it was all about the ways in which Blumenthal was trying to basically manipulate the sense of taste, both in his restaurants, but then um, the implications for um, fighting obesity around the world, fighting malnutrition, how you could actually get children to eat better, how you could help people who are sick, who can't eat certain, who can only eat liquid foods, for instance, how you could actually create meals that are enjoyable for them, now, how you can play around with the sense of taste, because taste is psychological. Taste isn't physiological. We, ha we do have taste receptors, of course, but there's a difference between taste and flavor. And when we are talking about taste and Kind of you and I are talking about taste. We're not talking about the receptors. Actually, maybe you're talking about the receptors on our tongue, but most people aren't are talking about this tastes good, this tastes bad. They're talking about flavor. They're talking about 
you know, how, what the experience is. And there is so much psychology in it. There's so much in how you're approaching it and how the food looks in what the presentation is in what your you know the music you're listening to the ambient temperature you know, all of these things matter the colors the textures there's a way so one of the things that blumenthal is famous for is encapsulation so how you can actually this was some of the foundational stuff of molecular gastronomy which he no longer really does but having those flavor crystals that you can then get away with having like one little thing of salt, but the whole dish tastes salty because you have that salt explosion in your mouth, which kind of plays around and makes it healthier because lower sodium. <laughs> so so there, there are ways that you can play around it and you start realizing that all of these things, so much is in your head. I mean, some of it is in your body, obviously. You know, people who suffer a loss of smell can't taste anymore. You know, they, they can't experience any flavors. There's their taste receptors are all there. They still, they still have all of, there's nothing wrong with their ability, but because they can't smell, the food is absolutely tasteless. It's honestly so my biggest, that's my biggest COVID fear if I were to get it, that I would lose my taste of, sense of taste and smell. Sorry, I didn't mean well, to Well, yeah, no, but luckily, luckily with COVID, it should come back. Um, <laughs> assuming you survive. Yeah. I hate to say it, but you know, I'm petrified of, of the segment. Likewise. I think, yeah, I think we really need to taking it seriously um so i don't want to i don't want to make a joke um of it but yeah but at least it comes back i had a friend who was actually i went to junior high and high school with her and she was training to be a professional chef and got hit by a car when she was running and um lost her uh lost her sense of smell complete anosmia and um, ended up losing her sense of taste um and so obviously had to drop out of culinary school um, and then wrote a book uh, um, about her quest to regain her sense of taste um, and the years she spent trying to train back smell. And over time, she was actually able to, to oh, do it. But nice that that story her, has a happy ending. Yeah, so her brain actually recovered, and she now, um, I think, runs America's Test Kitchen. So she combined the writing and the food. Um, cool. So she was able, but she was never able to cook professionally at the level that she had wanted to. So it really, but this also brings back the theme of luck, right? <laughs> how, how luck can uh, can actually come back in your life. The book came out a long time ago, but I actually recommend it to anyone who's uh, interested about it. It's, it's by Molly Birnbaum. Cool. I'll check it out. Um, but I just think it's so fascinating. Uh, do you think there's corollaries in poker? So, you know, you talk about manipulation of your brain as far as uh, yeah. how things taste, how things smell and how things look. And is, are there ways that you can manipulate opponents while you're playing that, has, has there been research on that as well? There hasn't really been any research on it, but there should be because I think you probably can. Um, and I think that, that we don't even need to have some research on poker specifically to know how you can manipulate opponents in some ways. So obviously, you know, ambient temperature is actually important because um, that, that manipulates everyone and people perform differently at different temperatures. They have, depending on their kind of comfort levels and internal thermometers, they think better, they think worse, risk propensities are different and that really 
is obviously important in poker. Whether you're hungry or not really matters when you're assessing risk. There's a hilarious study. I cannot believe. So no one has studied manipulating opponents at the poker table, but somehow someone was able to get a grant to do this study. So if you really, really have to pee and you weren't allowed to pee, you start making more impulsive decisions because you're concentrating so much on like not peeing yourself that you that you actually start start making like much more impulsive choices and preferring smaller rewards right now to waiting later for larger rewards i mean the fact that this study was made is just every time i talk about it i just want to burst out laughing but it's important and it actually shows something very important about our abilities to regulate different things. The reason I'm saying this is, yeah, sure, you know, bathroom breaks and poker and all of that. But if you start realizing how much things like that can affect how you think, how logical you are, how rational you are, how impulsive you are, then you can actually start manipulating people so that they're focused on something else so that you can make them uncomfortable psychologically. You don't have to physically make them uncomfortable. A lot of people do do that. They, they start playing mind games. They start doing things to, to, to actually manipulate people in a certain direction. Right. Make you tilt, so to speak. Um, so did you find any crossover from your last book, the confidence game with con artists and poker players? Are there con artists that play poker? Did you find a crossover in those two worlds or no? So I did find a crossover, but not in terms of the poker players. Sure, I'm guessing that there are some con artists who play poker, but it's a very different world because the reason con artists are con artists is because they're deceiving. They're taking people's trust and manipulating it for their own ends. Poker players, you know you're playing a game. Bluffing is part of the game. No one sits down at poker with the assumption that people never bluff. I mean, if they did we'd have to have a conversation about what this game is. So no one is taking advantage of anyone else in that sense. So you're not conning. You're actually just playing the game. But I'm sure there's overlap because there are con artists in every profession. But I met a lot of con artists who hang around poker players. So there's a lot of grift at the peripheries because poker players, it's so funny. A lot of them, they have a lot of money. Um, a lot of the the best ones and con artists are drawn to that. Um, they want to be healthy and they want to be fit and they want to do everything they possibly can to gain an edge. And con artists are drawn to that too, because they're very good at selling stories about why they can give you the biggest edge possible. Literally snake oil salesman. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and there's, I found a lot of them around poker players because I mean, it's a dream come true for them. They're like, oh, I, I'll give you an edge over your opponent. They're, they're telling them this. Con artists are storytellers, and they tell poker players what they want to hear. They tell every victim what they want to hear, but poker players are very open to a certain type of messaging. And in fact, when back when I was working on the confidence game, and take this with a grain of salt because most cons are never recorded, so we don't have good numbers. But at the time, the number one online con um, which makes it one of the number one cons in the world, period, um, was fake weight loss and diet pills and miracle cures, just health cons. That's, that was the number one. So miracle berries and miracle this and miracle that. And poker players love that shit. They, they eat it up, pun intended. <laughs> Hydroxychloroquine may have replaced it. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> I don't yep. know if the science is officially out on that, but I think so. I think, um, I think, I think we see a lot of the science out on there. By the way, which it's a wonderful drug. That's not a miracle anything, just yeah, not no, for COVID. Just for malaria. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, so a couple other questions I have for you. I, wanna, I wanted to, one of the things, it's one of the places I have not been. I've been to Hong Kong, but I have not been to Macau. And your description of Macau in the book is so haunting. <laughs> I just kind of wanted to, you to tell my listeners sort of like, what is this place? Like explain it in, in some way. Macau is like the dark upside down version of Vegas. So it's all the sinister elements and none of the good stuff. And the sinister elements are much more sinister. So Macau is just all gambling all the time, 24 seven. It's gambling, it's prostitution. That's it. I that's mean, it. that's why people come there. And businesses that tried, you know, Cirque du Soleil flopped in Macau. They had to cut, their contract got cut. That hasn't happened anywhere. There's, and the, Macau is trying to change this. Um, a lot of casino licenses are coming up in the next two years, and they're trying to tie the fa- whether or not they get a renewal to having like family-friendly shows and making it about something else. But I found this quote from Stanley Ho, and the Ho's are basically, they, o- they own Macau. Um, it's a huge, um, huge gambling family. And he had said, and this is a quote from a number of years ago, um, that, you know, basically it's almost impossible to do anything other than gambling in Macau as a businessman, um, that it just doesn't sell. Well, and, or pay for sex. Or, yeah, or pay for sex. And, and it's, really, it's, it's really depressing. It's actually a really depressing place. It's like the most depraved gamblers, you know, the people who are just there and you sometimes realize that they've been sitting at that baccarat table for three days and haven't gotten up because I would go and I'd go to sleep after a poker tournament. And then when I came back the next day and was walking past the same person wearing the same outfit would be sitting in the same place. Um, So I guess it must've been a lucky seat because otherwise I would have moved to another baccarat table, but it's a really, I mean, it's the dark underbelly of humanity. And a lot of people will say, Oh, but the food, there's fantastic food in Macau. Well, there is, but this is what we were talking about. I'm, I personally am incapable of separating myself from the atmosphere to that extent. Mm -hmm. And it's just very surreal. And I had, I mean, I had three Michelin star sushi there and I did it and I love sushi and I, I didn't love it because it was inside, you know, the city of dreams. What a dystopian name. (laughs) I'm not going to get any sponsorships from Macau Casino. (laughs) No, it doesn't sound like it. (laughs) (laughs) I just, it was a very disconcerting experience. Oh, and also it was actually very tough. Um, if you want, I, I had someone who who speaks both um, Cantonese and Mandarin, um, who's a poker player, take me around so that I could see like the real food scene and all of this. And that was much more fun, um, but also not something that you can otherwise experience because there's a lot of just racism towards white people there. If right. you're by yourself, people are just gonna laugh at you and they're not gonna let you in with good reason. I mean, they used to be a colonial empire. Like I totally get it. Like you're allowed to be, you're allowed to not like me. Um, <laughs> but sometimes I just want to go to the restaurant. Right. I get it. Okay. Last two things. Um, All right. There was one little mention in your book that I wanted to just slightly explore. <laughs> it was about Eric's mentor. 
Um, it was towards the end and uh, who had died recently. And but there was one little mention that you talked about with him playing against himself in a backgammon, in his own yeah. like, self-made backgammon tournament. And I kind of, yeah. And so I wanted to understand if the human brain is able to play against itself in a game of poker, in a game of, well, poker probably not, but maybe in a game of chess, where you can take your yourself out of yourself to play against an opponent in the exact way that you would be playing if you didn't know what the other side was doing. Yes, not in poker. Yeah, um, poker, because of the bluffing, it's, in, it's well, an impossibility. Well, poker, because, because, well, no, because... Well, because what, you know what the hands are. And, exactly. Yeah. What makes poker poker is that it's a game of incomplete information. So right. you can't actually play against yourself because if you know all the information, then there's no more strategy. Right. Um, but in chess, absolutely. In Go, absolutely. I think, yes, the human brain actually can work incredibly well by challenging against itself um, and using itself as a benchmark. I mean, I always say that I'm most fiercely competitive with myself. I want to do better than I did before. Right. Um, I think that's very healthy competition. Yeah, it's just so interesting. I always think it's like, well, do you favor the white pieces over the black pieces or vice versa? Because like for I some think, reason you want that side to win. I think that if you actually did this experiment on yourself um, and did it honestly, I think you would find that you could actually learn a lot about yourself and about your biases um, that you didn't uh, that you didn't know um, and that you didn't actually take into account before that you thought you were too good to to actually have yeah I think it's something about that really struck me as so interesting as a concept of just playing against yourself and yeah yeah I think it would be well he a, was a he was a fascinating guy yeah it seemed it sounded it sounded like it um all right last thing so another sciencey question for you because <laughs> um this is your specialty this this one is especially your specialty so a lot of um I do. I travel all over the world for work. Obviously, not now. I'm crying because my wings are clipped. But usually, I'm traveling all over the world, and and there are some places where I land, and I immediately have this sensation of, oh my god, this is home. I get that in every time I'm in Italy. I get that every time I'm in Spain. I get that every time I'm in New York City. Frankly, um, what is that? It's 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 almost because it all. It's, I mean, it's obviously it's not like. <laughs> It's not like a past lives experience or something, but like, what no. is it in your brain that just says that like makes that immediate connection and, and, obvi and obviously the exact opposite connection in other places? Comfort. And it's, it's what, what brings you comfort and where I think where you can see yourself. We're comfortable with things that are familiar um, in a certain, re in a certain way. And it doesn't have to be familiar because we've been there before. Although it often happens that we fall in love with a place more when it's somewhere that we have been before because it is more familiar and we are able to see it with new eyes because you're able to, you know, you're no longer breathlessly experiencing everything and instead you really get to appreciate it. But it doesn't have to come from there. It can come from the fact that 
someone close to you has spoken of this place and you feel a familiar connection because of that, because you've read about it, because there's just something emotional, because your background has something from this country. Oftentimes people will feel deep connections with places that their ancestors came from, even if you know their ancestors came from there 500 years ago. Right. Um, but it's still, there's something there. So I think it's, it's those bonds that are that exist on an emotional level um, rather than an intellectual one. And a lot of that comes from this sort of, I belong here, this is my place from one way or another. And sometimes it's very unexpected, but the people are so warm and welcoming that you suddenly, you just feel included. Um, sometimes you expect that you're gonna love a country and you don't. Um, and so you actually have this, I'm home, wait, no, no, I'm home. I'm not home. I thought this was home, but it's not um, type of experience. Um, and so once again, it's a lot of it comes down to kind of the, the psychology and that the psychology of familiarity and of comfort and of what, what does it mean to belong, right? What, what does it mean to feel at home? What does it mean to feel accepted? Like, this is my place. And I think a lot of it also comes from, you know, where do you feel safe? Where do you feel like you can be an idiot and make mistakes? Let me, I mean, I can give you an example of, of both things. I mean, I love both Italy and Spain. And those are two places where I come back to. And I just, I think I'm home. And a lot of that comes, I mean, I speak both languages, so that helps um, so that I can, you know, I can communicate, but the people are very warm and friendly and welcoming. And I think that that's a big part of it. And I have an emotional connection to a lot of it. When I was growing up, two of my, some of my favorite writers, my, one of my favorite poets, Federico Garcia Lorca is Spanish. And one of my all time favorite poets and thinkers, Joseph Brodsky was Russian, but was obsessed with Italy and wrote a book called Watermarks, which is just the most beautiful ode to Venice that you will ever read. If people who want to know what travel writing can be, read Watermarks. It's a short book and it's just, just pure poetry. And if you don't fall in love with Venice just by reading that book, then we cannot be friends, I'm sorry. <laughs> but but you know, I, I have a connection to it because of that, that I knew that he loved Italy before I loved Italy. And the, on the opposite side, I was supposed to love France. I do not like France. I always dread going to France because people are not, fr are not welcoming. I speak French better than I speak Spanish and Italian. It doesn't matter because you mispronounce one thing and you know, you're, you're out of there. It's a cold culture. Um, they're very full of themselves. I realize I'm, there are wonderful people in France. I realize I'm stereotyping like mad, but that's the experience that I often get there. Yeah. Um, and they try to take advantage of me. Um, you know, if you go, you go to, you go to Paris and they try to give you the, the tourist uh, prices on stuff. You go to the South of France and it's all the tourist prices. There aren't any other prices. And all of a sudden you're paying, you know, 30 euros for ice cream. And you think this is just insulting. Um, right. So, so I think it works on both ways. And I thought that I'd feel at home in France, and I don't. Fair enough. So there you okay. go. Okay, <laughs> thank you. Um, okay, so where can people find you, uh, follow you, get all your stuff? Tell me all the things. Um, so they can find me online. I have a website. It's mariakonnikova.com. Um, I should update it more often, but I don't. Um, but I do update Twitter, which is 
I think probably the best place um, where I'm at Mkonakova. I'm also on Instagram um, and there I'm girl named Maria, but girl doesn't have an I because I'm a writer who can't spell. <laughs> Actually, no, because someone else had girl named Maria with an I before I could get it, but I really wanted to be girl named Maria. So I had to be girl, girl, girl. girl. <laughs> How do you pronounce girl without an I? Girl <laughs> named Maria. Um, so those are the best places. And the biggest bluff is sold anywhere that books are sold. And uh, if you can go inside a local bookstore, buy it there. Um, if you can't. Yes, uh, or bookshop.com bookshop that will okay. connect you to your local independent bookstore that will um, allow you to order it. And a lot of these stores are delivering and will hand deliver it or bike messenger it to your door. All right. Well, thank you, Maria. I love the book. It made me think about a lot of things, as you can hear. Um, it was uh, really, really thought-provoking in many different ways. So go out, buy so the book, much. read it, follow Maria. Maria, such a pleasure to see you and talk to you again. Thank you. Likewise. Um, thank you, and Paul. And be well. I hope that next time we can do it in person in some wonderful exotic locale that makes us both feel at home. Over a meal, I hope. Over a meal. Yeah. Yes. All right. Thank you. Thank you. LA departure frequency 123.9. Roger. As you can hear, Maria is not only smart, but warm and kind and one of the most interesting people to talk to. Her foray into the poker world unlocked insights that are good for anyone struggling with basic decision making and negotiating tricky spots throughout their lives. I highly, highly recommend buying her new book, The Biggest Bluff, as you'll find yourself relating in hundreds of ways that you might not think possible in the context of a poker table. So thanks as always for listening, and hopefully I'll see you somewhere else around the world on another episode of The Paulcast. And please wear a mask.